0: People who have, let's say you mentioned here chronic cough, somebody without a cough, they're not coughing, but they're constantly clearing their throat because the irritation is is constantly there. Right. That's also a common manifestation. You're 100%
1: right about that. And it's interesting that usually uh, the way those patients come to our attention is because the significant other, whether it's the uh, the spouse, usually it's the wife, notices that their partner is constantly doing that, whether it's in public. And a lot of times it actually becomes almost a an unconscious uh, kind of manifestation where the person doesn't even realize that he's doing it because they're so used to doing it for such a long time. But the people that they are around notice it. And sometimes they notice that, you know... Uh, the quality of life being affected by it, you know, whether it's uh, in in, in a synagogue where you're supposed to be sitting, you know, quietly, and somebody is, is constantly making those noises which you described, and this is definitely true. Where you don't necessarily see a full uh, cough effect, but something that affects the patient
0: and their families and their loved ones to a large extent. So that that's very good because we're sort of getting an idea of what things people will be on the lookout for. So you said, of course, the obvious one is the heartburn, a bad taste in the mouth, and then we get many people come to the dentist and they want to know what to do about their bad breath, and maybe one of the things that they should be thinking about is reflux as a cause of their bad breath.
1: Absolutely. One of the things that is very interesting about the uh, digestive process is that Hashem created in a way where you need a, a certain type of environment, a certain type of acidic environment, in order to be able to break down the food products, in order to get the nutrients that our body needs. What's interesting is that there's a very fine line between an acidic environment and an environment that's either overly acidic, or not even overly acidic, but certain things that may predispose individuals to not being able to handle that acidic environment. And when that starts to happen, obviously when we think of acid, the word acid, it has a bad connotation in our minds, but acid is a very important element in the digestive process. The problem comes to surface when the anatomy either predisposes one to not be able to handle the acid properly, or there's sometimes too much of it. And that's usually, again, when it starts to cause corrosion Injury and other types of symptoms, and even more long-term structural problems that we have to deal
0: with. So we started out talking about some of the symptoms and how they could may maybe affecting people in a quality of life. It's annoying. You go, you, you're having a, a large meal and then you get that heartburn, or a bad taste, or the bad breath, or the chronic cough, or the noises that they're making in public. But now you're mentioning something else, and I think it's something that really is an underlying thing that even if people are are dealing with the other other issues the corrosion and the injury to their esophagus is something that I don't think many people even are aware of or how much damage could be done could we dis- discuss that a little bit sure
1: that's uh, actually a fascinating thing you know people think that if their symptoms get better that means that they're getting better And when it comes to chronic reflux, a lot of times it actually works the opposite. And let me explain what I mean by that. There are certain things when it comes to reflux, because again, as I mentioned, it is important to differentiate between what's called physiological reflux, which is what we all get to a certain extent, and pathological reflux, which is when this is really something that is more of a disorder that we have to deal with. And uh, one of the things that's important to keep in mind, is that at certain times where a uh, the acid is, is not being uh, digested properly. And for example, uh, the esophagus was made in such a way that it's supposed to feel when there's extra acid. So normally when people start to have symptoms, they think of it as being something that's normal. And again, a lot of times this is. When they start to feel a little bit more, they get concerned. But what happens very often is that as time goes on, their symptoms may actually abate. Their symptoms may get better. So people think of that as a uh, symptom that, they get, that, that they're that they improving. But a lot of times what's actually happening is the nerve endings, which are situated at the surface, are starting to get eroded. To, to the extent where the individual is no longer able to feel uh, the damage that's being caused by the extra acid. So that's one of the things that I was alluding to that we describe as "quote unquote" alarm symptoms. Again, it's a change in the symptoms that a person with chronic reflux starts to feel. And again, it's 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 complex. But the important thing to keep in, to keep in mind is that somebody with chronic reflux, just because they stop feeling the same symptoms, doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting better. Sometimes it actually could mean that the structure is changing for the worse.
0: So if somebody had chronic uh, uh, reflux for a long time, and then they started to see that they were not feeling so uncomfortable anymore, they might think that that means, oh, things are better. I've been watching what I'm eating. I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And in reality, what's happened is their condition actually got worse, as you're calling it, alarm symptoms, that things got where they thought they were feeling better, but in reality, it's because the nerve endings have sort of got burnt. Correct, correct. And uh, that's one of the
1: things that we look for. The other things that sometimes you could see as, again, quote-unquote alarm symptoms that come along with chronic refluxes, is uh, problems with swallowing. So one of the things that we have to be concerned about is if, if this goes on for long enough, it could actually affect the mechanism of the swallowing, which is, believe it or not, as, as you know, a very sensitive and regulated process. And the smallest thing could really set itself to the point where people uh, are not able to swallow properly. Sometimes people start to feel that they have to uh, drink something after they eat solids in order to kind of push the food down. That's another one of the alarm symptoms. And uh, the other thing, which again, we talked about a little bit uh, before, is if somebody has new symptoms. So for example... uh, let's say typically somebody uh, manifested their heartburn by just a burning sensation, and now all of a sudden they start to have what's called atypical chest pain, which means they start to have more pain than burning. That's something else that we also have to be on the lookout for. And this is really a very complicated process, but I think the important thing for the listeners to be aware of is that uh, although reflux is a common occurrence, it's not normal, if you will, to have it on a long-term basis, and you have to really kind of have your antennas up when you start to have these symptoms in order to see whether it needs to be addressed a little bit more carefully.
0: So someone who is not overweight, what are the reasons why someone who's not overweight, because I would say, okay, if someone's overweight, what's happening is the pressure from all the visceral fat, the fat around the, the intestinal organs, is sort of like pushing up, Mm-hmm. Right. But now somebody's not overweight. Why is that person getting reflux?
1: So there could be a couple of things. There could be what we call lifestyle factors, which means there are certain foods that we think predispose to having more uh, heartburn. Things that have a lot of caffeine in it are certainly thought to be a culprit. Uh, things that have a high citrus content are thought to be associated with more reflux. Spicy food. Is thought to be uh a You're corset. taking out all the fun. That's right. Coffee, citrus,
0: spicy, what are you leaving? Well, you could have uh bread. <laughs> <laughs> and even that you have
1: too much that <laughs> That's true. So, you know, the there are certain culprits, but again, it's it's very difficult. And you know, you're you're bringing up a bo- good point. It's very difficult to be able to lead a normal life uh eliminating if you will all those things that are basically a kind of a normal staple of everyday diet.
0: Well, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to have the same reaction to these foods. Correct. Certainly, somebody who has reflux, so these could be maybe some of the things that they want to rule out. But there are people that, like we said before, they're not aware of that, that what they have is really reflux. They may be having some of these other symptoms that we discussed and not realizing that that is the reflux. So one of the ways is from the foods, like you said. They're, let's say if they're... If, if, and besides being overweight one of the ways is from the different foods that they could be eating the caffeine the citrus the spicy what what's another cause
1: there are also some structural uh issues which uh could predispose one to having uh reflux symptoms for example there's something which is the most common thing that we see with people in reflux is a hiatal hernia and you know it's a little bit difficult to uh paint the picture over the radio, but I'll do my best. Basically, if you imagine the esophagus or the food pipe is a hollow cavity which allows the passage of food from the mouth uh, into the stomach to be digested properly. Uh, At the end of the esophagus, at the bottom of the esophagus, the food pipe, where the stomach starts, there is a sphincter, which is essentially a muscle uh, which wraps itself around the uh, esophagus and essentially acts as a barrier, as a, uh, a gate, gate yeah. if you will, mm-hmm. between the esophagus and the stomach. And the way Hashem created this was that it was intended for it to be a one-way valve for the most part. In other words, uh, we want the foot to go down, we want to have a little bit of flexibility because uh, sometimes, you know, reflux is actually, as I mentioned before, important uh, when it's uh, measured But for the most part, this is supposed to act as a one-way valve. And what happens with with a uh, hiatal hernia is essentially uh, there's a loose store. There's a loose connection between the esophagus, the food pipe, and the stomach. And sometimes this predisposes one to having reflux. Now the question is, what causes a hiatal hernia? Sometimes this could be related to one's anatomy. So for example, as you mentioned, people who are overweight are more likely to have a hiatal hernia, but a lot of times it could actually be just a function of genetics. So somebody may not be aware of it, but if they had family members who had had a hiatal hernia, they are likely more predisposed to also having hiatal hernia. Now, a lot of times people even with hiatal hernias could go through life without having the reflux symptoms, but certainly they're more more predisposed to having chronic reflux. So that's one of the structural things that we look at.
0: How would somebody know that they have a hiatal hernia if they're not having any symptoms? They don't have reflux. They don't, what, what would they have then?
1: You, you may not have anything. And one of the analogies that I heard uh, when I was a medical student, actually, is that a hiatal hernia, in a, in a lot of ways, is analogous to a loaded gun, which means uh, somebody could have a loaded gun, and it could sit in the drawer for years and years and years and decades, And as long as nobody takes it out and pulls the trigger, it's not going to cause any damage. A hiatal hernia acts much the same way. So somebody could have a hiatal hernia, and the um, the majority of people go through their lives without being aware of it. The problem is that certain individuals who are predisposed, whether it's because of lifestyle factors, because of being overweight, or because of reasons that we really, frankly, don't know yet, those are the individuals that are uh, the ones, if you will, that are taken at the gun and pulling the trigger. And for whatever reason, they are more predisposed to the dangers that come along with chronic reflux.
0: Right. So a person who has this hiatal hernia and then has, let's say, some of these foods or then becomes a bit overweight, that's pulling the trigger and that's pushing the hiatal hernia to allow this reflux and to allow all the symptoms that we mentioned before. Right. So well, the... those
1: are, I mean, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but those are really the factors that we know of. There are many, many things that really, to this day, we really are not aware of what really is the last trigger that causes somebody to have symptoms, whereas somebody who may have even a larger hiatal hernia and has the same lifestyle factors may not experience the symptoms. So there's still, as a, as in
0: all other fields of medicine, a lot of unknowns. Right. So, you know, we when we were mentioning our, our symptoms and we talked about, you know, having a bad taste in the mouth, I think one of the things that we didn't describe as a symptom because most patients are not really going to be aware of it but a, a dentist very often will come across it and that is that the acidity from the stomach will actually erode mm-hmm. and melt away the back of the teeth mm. meaning the back of your front teeth i look in a mouth that has acid erosion and i will see that the outside enamel meaning the facing the fa- the outside of your face looks normal mm-hmm. and the inside enamel is gone so we often see that with patients with a very high acidity coming from the stomach. Obviously, bulimics, people that are bringing up a lot of stomach acid, sure. certainly they're going to be much more prone. So we said a couple of causes could be, number one, the different foods that could trigger it, the structural predisposition for it. What what other causes besides the obesity, as we mentioned, which is certainly a clear trigger, what other causes could be reasons that people would have uh, reflux
1: so one of the important uh, elements of the digestive system is uh, the motility and what motility is 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 essentially a uh, function of the movement of the GI system so uh, the GI system doesn't just act as a hollow cavity that I mentioned before but there's actually a lot of work that goes into it, Uh, much the same way that a heart beats the GI system, starting from the esophagus, working its way down into the stomach, and further down, uh, has a very important element of motility, of the movement that's supposed to uh, help propel the food and the uh, nutrients into our body in order to be able to absorb those nutrients. So one of the things that we uh, also commonly see is uh, people that may have motility issues are very predisposed to heartburn.
0: Meaning right? that they're low motility,
1: Correct. low movement? Correct. So it, it could actually work both ways. So, for example, uh, if somebody has had uh, any neurological uh, type of history, whether it's a stroke, and it doesn't have to be a, a full stroke, it could even be what we call a mini stroke or a TIA. Sometimes those patients could have motility disorders that affect their swallowing mechanism and predispose to heartburn and reflux. If somebody has other things such as uh, Parkinson's, uh, that, that could certainly play a part also. Uh, and there are certain medications. For example, uh, there are things such as Reglan, which is a common medication that used to be uh, prescribed. Uh, not so much anymore because we started to notice that it has side effects with the neurological symptoms, but that also, in a way, was able to uh, change the mod- uh, the motility of the esophagus and the stomach and lead to uh, such problems. There's other antihypertensive medications, things that uh, people may take regularly for their, for their blood pressure that may affect the motility. There's a whole slew of things, really, that, that, that come into play. But again, the important thing to realize is that there is structure, which is what we talked about with the hiatal hernia, uh, and such, and obesity, and there's also motility, or the physiology, the way that things are supposed to uh, move. And if any of those things gets dysregulated,
0: then certainly one could be predisposed to having chronic reflux. You know, you're talking about the mobility. So I remember at one time hearing that one of the reasons why exercise is good is just the jumping up and down of, let's say, walking down the street or jogging will have a positive effect on the uh GI track how does that work I mean what's happening just you bouncing up and down is 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 getting things moving
1: right so one of the one of the ways that it actually works is by uh, helping to modulate the the uh, motility as we we're just discussing uh, it's very sensitive to exercise so for example you know you may notice that uh, people take their dogs for for a walk And part of the reason for that is to basically get their digestive process to to, to be working properly. And the body is very much in tune, especially the GI system, is very innervated and very much in tune with the amount of activity that's taking place. uh, uh, And the amount of exercise, if you will, that somebody uh, is performing. So uh, there is certainly evidence that you could help regulate that in a proper way by being more active, uh, exercising, and uh kind of resetting the system to allow for a better digestive process
0: you know i think it's interesting you know a lot of people think that well what's the point of the exercise and uh, you you do the you do the math and you go on the treadmill and you say okay i just exercised and i just burnt off mm-hmm. 75 calories so you say that this is not worth it it's not worth the the exercising if all i'm going to do is burn off 75 calories right. but i think that they're missing something very important here that what we're discussing right now has a much bigger effect on the system besides the 75 calories that they're burning off.
1: Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, evidence, actually, that we're seeing more and more of, specifically with the GI system, but certainly this, goes tr- this holds true with the pulmonary, the cardiac sim- uh, systems, where exercise has long-term uh, positive consequences that we're not even aware of for many, many years whether it's in terms of the endorphins, which are these hormones which are released into your bloodstream that may last there for, for years, literally. Uh, one of the things I definitely try to talk about with my patients uh, is the importance of exercise and having an active lifestyle. So
0: when you're saying an active lifestyle, what, what are you meaning?
1: I tell people that uh, they, they should try to exercise at least three times a week for at least half an hour each time. And by exercise, I don't mean just walking to work or walking back to the uh, train station. Uh, that counts. It helps a little bit. Certainly, that's well, It depends better on being, how far you have being, to walk. Right, right. It's and that's better than being sedentary completely. But it's really very important to get your heart beating and to, uh, you know, at least uh, send the messages to the body that there's activity going on here. So one of the things that I tell the patients is, if you're not sweating your body's probably not benefiting that much from it. So one of the easy ways of being able to tell if your exercise is, is helping you is, is it enough that it's causing to at least break a sweat?
0: So what happens when, you know, let's say, uh, somebody's doing some fast walking, and then they'll do a like a little sprint, get their heart re- rate going up again, and then go back to their fast walking? Is that what you're talking about, or you're talking about a more constant sort of like a jogging the whole time business?
1: No, I think I, I think you know it depends. It depends on the individual and it depends on you know the body hab- habitus and uh, certainly there's different forms of exercise which are all beneficial. Uh, you know from from what I see, the best uh, bank for your buck is where you have a mix of different types of cardiovascular. And muscle building exercises, where uh, you're combining jogging, running, uh, swimming, and if possible, lifting uh, of weights to a certain extent, so that you could have a well-rounded uh, body, which is able to deal with the different, uh, you know, disease processes, if you will, that that may that may be thrown our way, and that really is is probably in my mind the best way uh to exercise but again there are people that that tell me uh they swim three times a a week there are people that tell me they go running three times a week and as i always tell them whatever it is that you feel you're benefiting from it's better than sitting at home and doing nothing and it's 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 uh, certainly again if you're breaking a sweat there's a very good chance that you're giving yourself good short-term and long-term consequences
0: great great so just to do a, a quick recap, if you just joined us, joined us, it's Health Watch Radio, and we're talking with uh, Dr. Rahmani. He's a gastroenterologist. He's a director of medical education and research at Maimonides, and he's actually just uh, moved his office here to uh, Quentin Road, across the street from Matera Torah, at 902 Quentin Road. We welcome him here, and we're, we're talking about reflux. We're talking about uh, some of the symptoms of reflux we started out with, which were Heartburn, of course, is the classic symptom, but for some people it's just a bad taste in the mouth, bad breath, a chronic cough, or just clearing the throat, constantly clearing the throat. And then we talked about the fact that acidity and the importance of acidity in the body, but how it can be irritating if it's going the wrong way going into the esophagus and staying there. And the the esophagus, as Dr. Rahmani was mentioning, is designed to recognize when that acid is going backwards where it shouldn't be. And unfortunately, sometimes you could have some corrosive injury to the esophagus. He talked about the alarm symptoms, which is where you actually stop feeling the pain because you've burnt those nerve endings of the esophagus. And another possible alarm symptom is a problem swallowing, not being able to swallow without having something to drink to push the food down. That could be another alarm system and a new symptom like an atypical pain in the chest. We talked about what the causes of reflux could be besides obesity, and that is some of the foods that we could be eating for people that are prone to, a, to, uh, to reflux, such as caffeine, citrus foods, spicy foods. The anatomy, the structure of the uh, area of the esophagus, which Dr. Rahmani mentioned hiatal hernia as a loose connector, a loose valve, a loose doorway between the stomach and the and the esophagus. And he mentioned the, the analogy of a loaded gun, that be, people could have this hiatal hernia their whole life, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, not have any problem, but sometimes when either the foods or obesity or something could kick it off and create a an opening that will allow the acidity to go backwards. And then something which I, I think was very interesting, I don't think many people are aware of this, is the physiology, the motility, the movement of the whole GI tract, how important that is, that people who have had some type of a neurological problem with it, their GI system is not really moving enough, or a stroke, or a TIA, or Parkinson's, or even some medications like antihypertensives, anti high blood pressure. All of these can bring about the results of uh, having re- a reflux. And we talked about finally the way that exercise can be a tremendous help with the ju- digestive process. And in fact, how the exercise has so many benefits besides the actual calories. And that's why I think most people make the mistake. They think it's the calories that they're burning and that's the purpose of their exercise. But there are so many other benefits to their system by doing uh, good exercise. Uh, Could we just talk a little bit about what somebody should do and what happens if they don't do anything at all?
1: So the dreaded Consequence that we're obviously trying to avoid is where the corrosion and the injury becomes a long-term problem and then it starts to essentially change microscopically uh, the mucosa, which is essentially the skin of the esophagus, the, of the food pipe. And when that occurs, that's really what we think, for the most part, predisposes one to... Uh, having a malignancy, God forbid, you know, esophageal cancer, uh, and so on. Now, it's important to realize that something like that doesn't just happen overnight. In fact, there's a whole progression of uh, what occurs, which is essentially what happens: is the skin of the esophagus starts to change slowly over time, and these are things that uh, play a very important uh, part in the role of a gastroenterologist, of not just diagnosing that somebody has chronic reflux, but making sure that you're monitoring that individual to make sure, number one, obviously they're getting better, they're feeling better, but also just as important to make sure that the injury uh, is being surveyed properly, that it's being monitored properly, so that you could prevent the long-term consequences. And one of the... Uh byproduct of this injury, which is kind of fortunate in a way, is that, again, since it occurs slowly, it's something that allows us the opportunity to be able to monitor it. And uh, essentially, without getting too technical, uh, it goes through a process where the, fir- the first step is something called intestinal metaplasia, where the uh, skin of the esophagus starts to look somewhat different than the way it's supposed to. And there's something, a term that people may have heard is something called Barrett's esophagus. Barrett's esophagus is essentially where uh, we're starting to see enough of a change that you know we start thinking to ourselves, okay, this needs to really be followed a little bit more carefully uh, because we want to make sure that it doesn't get any worse. Uh, when we do diagnose Barrett's esophagus, there's uh, protocols that are Uh, recommended by the GI societies, by the cancer societies, by the preventative medicine societies, in order to ensure that it doesn't go beyond that. And if anything, hopefully, we're reversing the trend to improve the mucosa, the lining
0: of the esophagus. So that damage that's happening is reversible, as you're saying, if you're catching it in the process. Correct. So that's the, that's the goal. And that's why we do the monitoring. Right. And the way you're monitoring it is with a endoscopy?
1: Correct. That's the best way of monitoring. That's what's what we call the gold standard. Now, there are ways to uh, diagnose reflux without doing an endoscopy. Uh, things uh, like esophagrams that were historically used. But the problem with those tests, besides the radiation, is that it kind of gives us an idea of whether reflux is occurring or not, but you don't really see it in real time, number one, and you're not able to examine uh, the mucosa or the lining of the esophagus uh, by doing what's called a biopsy, which is taking a very small sample and looking at it under the microscope. And really, that's what we care about. Uh, you know, As I mentioned, there's two steps to the reflux uh, uh, process. Number one, obviously, we want the symptoms to get better, so we have to diagnose that there is reflux. But just as important, we want to see what kind of damage that reflux is causing, if any. The only way you could really do that is uh, by doing an endoscopy and doing a little uh, sample biopsies. There's a lot of innovation technology uh, which allows us to uh, decipher those changes much earlier than we used to be able to. There's things where we could essentially amplify the tissue. We could take a very small amount of cells and amplify them through what's called FISH or cytology or other types of uh, mechanisms, and really be able to pick this up at a very, very early stage. Uh, Historically, what what used to happen is people sometimes got multiple x-rays, and eventually they ended up having an endoscopy uh, to make sure that the diagnosis was correct and what kind of damage was being done, if any. And as time has gone uh, by, uh, the trend has kind of uh, become to do an earlier endoscopy, both in terms of being able to make the diagnosis earlier and also being able to intervene earlier.
0: So it sounds like people just don't want to do an endoscopy. Now, I understand everybody's running away. They don't want to do colonoscopies. (laughs) But what's the big deal of being an endoscopy? It must be much more than it sounds like. Uh, To me, it sounds like, you Taking a look down the esophagus, what what's happening?
1: Right. So you know it is an invasive uh, procedure. It is. I think some of it does come from the fact that it's associated with like, with colonoscopy, which is a little bit more involved. Endoscopy, really, you're you know you're right. It's a, it's a very simple uh, test. Essentially, there's a camera which is about the size of a pen uh, that goes through the mouth. It has a it has a light at the end of it, and it also has a channel which allows us to do interventions in terms of taking biopsies, taking samples and also sometimes doing therapeutic interventions. And essentially, we, uh, under direct visualization, uh, look at the mouth, the esophagus, the food pipe, the stomach, and then the uh, first, second, and sometimes third portion of the small intestine. Uh, In a lot of countries, actually, endoscopy is done in the office. Uh, What happens is the doctor or the nurse will give a little bit of numbing spray, uh, much like you would get at the dentist's office in the back of the throat, and the and the procedure is done right then and there. Uh, in America, people tend to be a little bit more queasy, so <laughs> you know it it sometimes uh, you know may may tickle the vocal cords a little bit and not be comfortable if somebody's awake. So the trend in America definitely is to do it under sedation, and I think that's the part that people sometimes get. Nervous about. And I think it's also important to emphasize that not every single person that has reflux needs an endoscopy. You know, that's why you need a doctor who is, uh, you know, trusted by you and by your internal medicine uh, practitioner and who has experience in this field so that he could decipher the patients that would benefit from an endoscopy and those patients that could be treated empirically, which means essentially we could try to kind of uh, figure out what's going on without an endoscopy and treating it appropriately.
0: So now, okay, you you were talking about new technology. So I know you had mentioned that from Israel we got some new technology. What is that technology that we do have now available?
1: It's actually a very exciting uh, field that has developed. As we talked about before, structure and the... Uh, uh, histology or basically what something looks like under the microscope is very important and we're giving a lot of that information by doing a regular endoscopy but one of the things that limits the use of endoscopy is that it doesn't give us that much physiological information in other words, in terms of the motility, in terms of the amount of acid so one of the things that was actually uh, developed in uh, connection with the IDF and the technology that they use is a capsule, it's called the Bravo capsule, which is actually implanted by the gastroenterologist during an endoscopy. And the capsule uh, is able to communicate with a electronic device that the patient would wear around their neck. And while this is done, again, the patient has the endoscopy, has the capsule implanted, they go home with the electronic device, and they monitor carefully what they're eating, uh, when they're sleeping, when they're having symptoms, and this technology is able to gather all that information, use computer uh, programs to kind of synthesize all the information to tell us not just the structural abnormalities, but also the physiology, whether in terms of the acid, and not just the acid, but if it's the acid that's in fact causing uh, the uh, problems or the symptoms that a patient may be experiencing. I had a very uh, interesting case where I had a patient that had literally seen more than 10 or 15 specialists trying to figure out what was causing her symptoms. She had had several endoscopies, esophagrams, and she came to see me. Uh, She was a good candidate for the uh, Bravo capsule, which we did. And one of the things that you keep track of is not just the food that you're eating, but what kind of food that you're eating. And I noticed that... Whenever she was eating cream cheese, there was a huge spike in the amount of acid that was being released into her esophagus. So she came back to see me, and I told her you know, about the findings. I asked her if she eats a lot of cream cheese. She told me that she likes cream cheese. She eats it regularly with breakfast. And what was interesting is that the correlation didn't happen right away. Because if something happens right away, most people are able to tell, I eat cream cheese, I don't feel well. Her symptoms actually happen about 45 minutes to an hour after eating the cream cheese. But
0: you saw with the Bravo capsule that it was happening, that, that the, the actual trigger was happening Correct. right then.
1: That there was a direct correlation. So I told her, listen, don't eat cream cheese for two weeks, and let's see what happens. She stopped She stopped eating cream cheese, and lo and behold, she felt like a different person. Her symptoms stopped. She was able to eat without any sw- the swallowing difficulties, and she felt like a, like a brand new person. Now, this is something that, could have never been picked up with even a regular endoscopy or, 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 or certainly all the other uh, x-rays or imaging that we have available. But because of this uh, new technology, the Bravo capsule, we're able to see in real time uh, the triggers and the symptoms that some, somebody may be experiencing as a result of those triggers.
0: Wow, wow. So we're wrapping it up right now, but really I want to thank uh, Dr. Rahmani He's the gastroenterologist, the director of medical education at Maimonides. And again, he's uh, recently moved his office to 902 Quentin Road here on Quentin and East 9th Street. And if anyone wants to get in touch with Dr. Rahmani, you can give a call at 718-336-3900, 718-336-3900. And if you know somebody that has any of these kind of symptoms that we're talking about, such as the heartburn, of course, the classic symptom, or the bad taste in the mouth the bad breath the chronic cough clearing of the throat any of these type of symptoms certainly it pays to look into it dr ahmani the specialist in gastroenterology 7183363900 thank you so much for joining us dr ahmani
1: thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure